August 5, 1962. In the early hours between 4 a.m. and 5 a.m., Norma Jean's lifeless corpse lay face down on the bed with a telephone receiver in her hand. With the sheets partially exposing her mid to upper back, pooled blood could mysteriously be seen despite her body being face down. As Sergeant Jack Clemens perused the alleged suicide scene, he became increasingly suspicious of the people who were in his vicinity. These people were housekeeper Eunice Murray and, for some reason, psychiatrist Dr. Greenson. Sergeant Clemens noted many strange details as he investigated the bedroom. The initial report of an apparent overdose suicide was confusing because there wasn't any water or cups present in the room. Further still, the ensuite washroom was under repair and the plumbing was shut off. She was said to have died mid-conversation and was still holding a telephone receiver in her hand. So why was the blood pooling up on her back? This strongly indicated that the body had been moved and possibly staged. And finally, why had Eunice Murray, who allegedly discovered an unresponsive and comatose Monroe, called Marilyn's doctors first instead of an ambulance or a police car? The circumstances surrounding this probable crime scene are still a topic of debate to this day, the likes of which may eventually point to the person who murdered Marilyn Monroe. Welcome to Smokefilled Brooms, a political true crime podcast exploring history's most infamous governments, parties, leaders, policies, and discontents. Hosted by Gregory Zink. Murdering Marilyn Monroe, The Kennedy Conspiracy Theory, Part 4. Welcome back to the Smoke-Filled Rooms podcast. We will finally take a long look at the Kennedy conspiracy theory in regards to the potential murder of Marilyn Monroe. To do this, we will be examining various sources revolving around individuals who were directly involved in various aspects of her untimely and sad death. These people are actor and Kennedy clan confidant, Peter Lawford, LAPD traffic officer, Lynn Franklin, the aforementioned Sergeant Clemens, private detective Fred O'Tash, and of course, Bobby Kennedy himself. But before we begin, I want to recite to you a fitting passage from Hamlet. Ophelia, who in my mind can be seen as a parallel figure to Monroe, states that, quote, But good, my brother, do not as some ungracious pastors do. Show me the steep and thorny way to heaven wiles. Like a puffed and reckless libertine, himself the primrose path of dalliance treads, and wrecks not his own reed. This is Ophelia's first appearance in the play, and her brother Laertes is warning her against trusting Hamlet's declarations of love. She agrees that she will take this into consideration, and then wittily reminds him that he may be served well to heed his own advice. Seeing how he was an arrogant young fun-seeker who could easily be swallowed up, by a Parisian metropolis. 
Her playfully intelligent responses makes her eventual descent into mental illness all the more disturbing and tragic. That someone seemingly so innocent and sharp could be tricked, used, discarded, and left to spiral into the abyss is reflective of the once radiant Norma Jean Baker. Marilyn Monroe had lived in seclusion in a rambling Spanish-style bungalow in Los Angeles. Last night, her housekeeper, Eunice Murray, noticed that Miss Monroe still had her bedroom light on at midnight. At 3 a.m., Miss Murray found the light still on, the door locked. A physician, hurriedly summoned, broke a bedroom window, found the actress dead in bed, holding in one hand a telephone which was off its hook, with an empty bottle of sleeping pills nearby. No notes were found, but... Since the actress was known to have been depressed of late, a deputy coroner listed the death as an apparent suicide, pending completion of an autopsy. Police say they are not so sure that death may have been accidental. Once again, we will start off on August 4th, 1962. Marilyn and Pat Newcomb catch a little bit of morning sun at Cursum Perfico and then drop by the Lawford's Beach House for a quick visit with Patricia. In regards to her mental state and mood that day, the reports are conflicted at best. Pat Newcomb said that she resolved an argument with Marilyn, and that upon returning to her house later that afternoon, she was upbeat and happy. In what seemed readily apparent, she was ready to have a great day with smiles all around. But Dr. Greenson would later contradict this by saying that she was, quote, in a highly emotional condition, end quote. This is from the man we will soon learn played a very mysterious role in the direct aftermath of Monroe's death. As strange and mysterious as happening to be there at Monroe's residence at 1am on her death night and allegedly breaking windows to save her and muddying the waters further still is that when Lawford called her at home later that night at about 7.30, he said she seemed quote, out of it. She sounded despondent over her loss of a contract with 20th Century Fox Studios and some other personal matters, end quote. It was further insisted by Lawford himself that he tried to convince her to forget about her problems and join him and his wife Pat for dinner that evening. She replied that she would consider joining them and get back to him later. Enter Joe DiMaggio Jr., who later reported to police that upon his call shortly thereafter, she was in a very good mood and very upbeat. Nothing worrying or peculiar at all. And what's interesting to note at this point are Monroe's final diary entries. These are said to have been written the day before she passed. They note how she was mad at the Kennedys for using her as a sex toy and tossing her aside. She additionally pointed out to Peter unanswered calls to the two political brothers and also noted that she spoke to Lawford about it in that final week. So acting as an intermediary between the Kennedys and Marilyn, Peter was constantly relaying information both ways while trying to keep his wife Patricia out of the loop. Hence the phone calls to the White House through a payphone on the side of a busy road in Los Angeles. Peter was passing along his knowledge of the fact that Marilyn was super pissed off about being used and was credibly threatening to go public. Yet somehow, Peter convinced Bobby to swing by Los Angeles while he was in California to visit Monroe and deal with it personally. Or perhaps, after hearing about the potential tsunami of controversy that Marilyn was about to unleash, 
Bobby felt it necessary to deal with things personally. Regardless, the now public knowledge, at least the sections that were made public, had Marilyn's final diary scribbles. These writings registered her interactions and said that Peter Lawford told her to stay put because, quote, stay there, Robert and I are on our way over, just hold put. And this is the crux of the Kennedy conspiracy theory. We now have very real corroborative evidence showing that RFK was indeed in Los Angeles on August 4th, 1962. This is despite the fact that all his lackeys of the day swore he wasn't. Even Chief Gates would later write in his 1992 memoirs that the Attorney General was in fact in Los Angeles and gave his opinion that, quote, Frankly, I never bought into the idea that she killed herself because he dumped her. And the truth is, we knew RFK was in town on August 4th. We always knew when he was in our town. End quote. This was the man who led Okid at the time, and had his right-hand man, Captain Hamilton, acting as the personal security detail for the Kennedys in LA. The powers that were in the state of California clearly aligned with Team Kennedy. They coordinated their narrative and pushed for a speedy conclusion to the Monroe investigation and death case. In this vein, it should be noted that after Marilyn's death, Peter Lawford, who plays a significant and direct role in these events, left Los Angeles days after the investigation started. And to make things even stranger, he was never contacted by the LAPD until the reopening of the case in 1975. And as an obvious reminder, this is 13 years after the initial investigation, if you can call it as such. A reopening that Officer Rothmiller claims was a straight-up sham, a piece of legal theater to officially close the books on Marilyn's murder forever after a 1975 We Magazine article entitled, quote, Who Killed Marilyn Monroe? It raised some uncomfortable questions about the entire ordeal. This piece of journalism brought serious claims against the initial investigation and insinuated that the police force and the coroner's office coordinated a conspiracy to suppress the details of her murder and eradicate a threat to the Kennedy dynasty. And at this point in our story, we are going to review Peter Lawford's alleged revelations regarding the final days of Monroe's life. As framed by Officer Rothmiller and author Douglas Thompson, this is the supposed disclosure relayed to us in the book Bombshell. This will be a lengthy and summarized excerpt, so please bear with me. Quote, The days leading up to Marilyn's death were filled with emotional telephone calls from her to Peter Lawford and to President Kennedy and to Attorney General Robert Kennedy. She was rapidly moving towards a showdown with the most powerful men in the world. If she wasn't immediately brought under control, the presidency was in danger. This was the conclusion reached in top-secret documents at the time by Peter Lawford and, more importantly, by President JFK and his brother Robert. On August 5, 1962, RFK covertly traveled from the San Francisco area to Southern California via a private aircraft. Lawford picked him up from the airport and drove to his beach house in Santa Monica, where RFK and Marilyn exchanged telephone calls before Lawford drove Robert Kennedy to her residence for the first visit 
of that day. Between calls with Marilyn, RFK telephoned President Kennedy, providing updates on the situation. RFK also made several, presumably guarded, telephone calls after requesting that Lawford leave the room. Although OCID documents indicated that Lawford and Kennedy secretly visited Marilyn's home twice that day, Lawford vacillated on the number of visits. He was firm that they visited during the evening when she died, but seemed to be confused regarding the earlier visit. However, he could not be sure that they did not visit twice. When I informed him that the files had recorded two visits that day, he nodded in agreement. Keeping Lawford on point was challenging during our time together. He'd start to answer a question, then drift off into an unrelated field. I'd quickly stop him and say, Peter, that's interesting, but it has nothing to do with my question. He'd look at me and say, oh, oh, sorry, and I'd state the question again. What occurred during their evening visit was the heart of the interrogation and my primary focus. I didn't know how long he would continue to talk, so it was imperative I forced the conversation to that evening. Rothmiller asked him, what happened when you and Robert arrived at her home that night? He didn't turn to me or acknowledge my question. He just stared straight ahead in silence. When he answered, he started to retell the story of the earlier visit, not the evening visit. Uh, an, an old woman answered the door. I think she was the housekeeper. I, I gave her some money and told her to leave. Did she leave? Rothmiller asked. He nodded. That meant only you, Robert, and Marilyn were in the house, correct? He nodded again. I believe Lawford was confusing some details of the earlier visit with the final evening visit since intelligence documents indicated that the housekeeper was present during the first visit and was ordered to leave the second time. Fortunately, I had the benefit of having viewed the intelligence documents and having spoken to Fred O'Tash, so I was appraised of that information already. When Lawford seemed confused, I was able to fill in the blanks. Wasn't the housekeeper there during your first visit and not the second? Rothmiller asked. He turned to me and thought before he answered, Yeah. He started to speak openly without my prodding or interruptions. As he spoke, it was apparent he was reliving the night and it was painful. I have witnessed people under interrogation lapse into this state where the images, sounds, smells, and the pain of the horrific event resurfaced. He was a man unburdening himself of a terrible nightmare that he'd kept secret for many years. He said when they arrived for that evening visit, Marilyn answered the door. Peter Lawford thought she was slightly under the influence of drugs or alcohol, but she was not completely intoxicated. And almost immediately, the situation became heated as they moved into the living room where Marilyn accused Robert Kennedy and his brother of treating her as a whore and adding that she had enough of them. Robert said something to the effect of, quote, what do you want, end quote. That question pushed Marilyn into a tirade. She stepped towards Robert and yelled, quote, What do I want? What do I want? I don't want to be treated like a fucking whore and ignored. What do you want, Robert asked again. With his voice raised, he shook his hand in her face. Marilyn slapped his hand away, and Kennedy slammed her to the floor near the sofa. He leaned over her, screaming profanities and grabbing her flailing arms by the wrists. She struggled free of his grip and slapped him, enraging Kennedy to a point where Lawford believed Kennedy was about to strike her. Peter grabbed Kennedy from behind and pulled him away. 
Lawford recalled a few of the details of the rest of the argument, but remembered it was heated and involved a physical altercation. He helped Marilyn to her feet and sat her on a sofa while Bobby stormed out of the room and began searching the house, rifling through cabinets and drawers while Lawford stayed with Marilyn to try and restrain and calm her. He wasn't sure exactly what Bobby was trying to find, but he already understood that Kennedy wanted her diary and other items linking to the Kennedys and to her. Marilyn stood, pushed Lawford away, and stormed into her bedroom where Bobby was rummaging through her dresser. She screamed at him to get out and jerked him away from the dresser. Kennedy angrily spun around and violently pushed Marilyn, causing her to fall on the bed and tumble to the floor. Instantly, Kennedy leaned over, grabbed her wrists, and pulled her onto the bed. She was now crying. Kennedy held her down on the bed and repeatedly yelled, Where is it? Where is it? He said he had to have it, and they'd pay her. Again, Lawford interceded by pulling Kennedy away. Lawford didn't remember the exact words, but recalled Kennedy leaning over her and screaming something to the effect of, You'd better shut your fucking mouth. Marilyn was hysterical and crying when Kennedy stormed out of the bedroom. Lawford was stunned by Kennedy's actions and at a loss to explain his violent outburst and the apparent threat, he didn't know what he should do. He helped Marilyn into a seated position on the bed and did his best to console her. He hugged her for several minutes before she pushed him away, stood up, and went in search of Robert. Peter quickly followed her into the living room, grabbed her, and convinced her to sit with him on the sofa. Reluctantly, she complied. He glanced around the room looking for Robert, but didn't see him. He heard a noise in the kitchen and begged Marilyn to remain seated while he spoke with Robert. At this point in our conversation, Lawford paused. He dropped his head and covered his face with his hands. He was silent for several moments, and I was worried he had decided to stop talking. I placed my hand on his shoulder and gently squeezed. What is it? I asked. Nothing, he said as he rubbed his face and he raised his head, looking straight ahead. Are you okay? Rothmiller asked. He nodded again softly. And then he continued. Uh, I left her on the sofa and went into the kitchen. Bobby was by the sink. He had a glass of water and he was stirring it. Why was he stirring a glass of water? Did he put something in it? Rothmiller asked. Lawford replied that I asked him, what are you doing, Bobby? What are you doing? Did he tell you? Rothmiller asked. Peter shook his head, implying no. What did you think he was doing? Rothmiller asked. He gazed forward, then looked at me. His expression changed. He suddenly looked like a man on the verge of crying. He took several moments before, in a near whisper, he said, quote, he put something in it. What was it? Rothmiller asked. I don't know, Lawford replied. Was the water colored or clear? It was clear, Lawford replied. Then what happened? He took another long pause. He pointed to the glass and asked, what was in it? What did he say? Rothmiller asked again. He told me that Kennedy then snapped. Nothing! Lawford watched as Kennedy placed the spoon into the drawer and picked up the glass. They remained in the kitchen for a few moments as Lawford repeatedly asked Kennedy why he was doing this, implying the outrage and the violent attack on Monroe. He didn't receive an answer though. He told Kennedy they had to leave because the neighbors might have heard the yelling and could have called the police. Bobby didn't respond. Marilyn could be heard weeping in the living room. Kennedy took the glass of water and walked to the living room where Marilyn was seated on the sofa, cradling her head in her hands and crying. They stood in front of her and Kennedy extended the glass to her. Drink this, you'll feel better, he said. 
She looked up and refused at first, but with Lawford's coaxing, she took a drink and immediately remarked on the unpleasant taste. Lawford indicated that time that she thought it contained a sedative which would calm and diffuse the situation. Finish it, Kennedy told her, hurry up. She glanced up at him and then looked at Lawford, who said, quote, it's okay, Marilyn, drink it. It's just water, it's okay, finish it. And with that, she finished the drink. To the best of his recollection, Lawford and Kennedy then left Marilyn on the sofa and proceeded to search the other rooms before returning to the living room. His time frame was sketchy, but he remembers that when they returned to the living room, Marilyn hadn't moved from the sofa. She was leaning back with her head tilted backward. She appeared to be sleeping. Kennedy approached and shook her shoulder until a groggy and obviously drugged Marilyn stirred back to life. But Lawford realized she was unresponsive and didn't appear to be breathing properly. He asked Kennedy, what did you give her? Kennedy momentarily stared at her, then turned to Lawford, but didn't answer. He moved to continue his search of the house, and Lawford followed him. End quote. Hey everyone, I just wanted to take a moment from the podcast to alert you to an amazing new book that is making its rounds in the Liberty community. It is called How to Survive Dystopia with Your Humanity Intact by Star O'Hara. In its totality, it's one part philosophy, one part how-to, one part political analysis, and one part self-help. And it really got my ass into gear when she forced me to consider the topics of the Great Reset, the technocratic agenda, mass delusion, and the economic insanity that is hanging over our heads like the Sword of Damocles. But as Star courageously asserts, as in all good stories, the path will be difficult with many obstacles along the way. And like all heroes, the dystopian survivor will need to develop his character in response to each struggle. Only in this way, he can gain the strength he'll need for the final battle. How to Survive Dystopia with Your Humanity Intact is a guide to the hero's journey through the dystopian landscape. So once again, the title of the book is How to Survive Dystopia by Star O'Hara. It is available on Amazon.com in both the Kindle and paperback versions. I would also like to draw attention to Star's Substack page. It is called Dispatches from Dystopia and is a place where you can access all of her writings and subscribe to her email list, all of which will be included in the show notes. Thank you, Star, and rock on. And following this interaction, it seems as though Marilyn was left unresponsive on the couch, and Lawford attempted once again to revive her after unsuccessfully rousing her from her sleep, Bobby encouraged Lawford to leave the residence immediately with him. And upon their exit, Lawford additionally revealed to Rothmiller that there were two what seemed to be Oakid agents waiting outside Marilyn's property and were ready to enter her house as soon as Lawford and RFK left. Now, after hearing all of these alleged details, which I must point out once again, are being relayed strictly from Officer Rothmiller to Douglas Thompson for the purposes of their expose book, Bombshell. We can return to the other details regarding this situation later in the podcast. Original records of all the aforementioned events, including the wiretaps, the documents, the surveillance, and even some physical evidence, was said to have been destroyed after 10 years. This was per the LAPD's alleged evidence expiration policy. But Thad Brown, who is a deputy chief of the Detective Bureau, is claimed to have had over 700 pages of Maryland documents 
in his possession, secured at his residence. And Chief Murdoch said only 19 of these pages, representing about 2% of the massive files, were permissible for public consumption. All of these documents were very innocuous and supported of the official narrative. That is, the suicide narrative that was reiterated in the 1975 investigation. So we Monroe fans may have to wait for relatives of Brown to eventually reveal the files he had concealed in his home. Or perhaps we'll never really learn what was in those OCID documents, because it was decided they would all be destroyed at some point, which would make their concealment and destruction all the more ominous and telling of what really happened to Monroe. For why else would any of these actions be necessary, if not for some nefarious purpose? And going back to 1962, we see that the media headlines after her death were littered with hearsay and speculation. They talked of depression, abortions, pill abuse, and an unkept appearance in the weeks before her death. Yet she was on the cusp of making a smashing comeback with her newfound deal with Fox Studios on the Something's Got to Give project. There was little mention of the positives going on in her life and the potential for a new and successful chapter to emerge from the heartache and the pill abuse. But the media can't be entirely blamed for churning out a lazy yet scandalous narrative. This is because of the contradictory and absent evidence that was not available to their reporting and snooping. Case in point, were the telephone records from Monroe's house from August 3rd and August 4th that mysteriously disappeared. Indeed, even mainstream accounts of the day have not completely come clean on this topic. They were simply not available for the media to cover and were additionally said to have been destroyed or lost. Again, this leads us to wonder why and who could possibly have the connections and the influence to enact such an undertaking. Again, the Kennedys stand out as the ones with a motive, the means, and the opportunity to do so. I suppose it is conceivable that Sinatra and his mob pals could have had the pull to make this happen. But why would they? Marilyn was a sex toy they occasionally used, on top of the fact that the connected Sinatra did care for her in a quasi-paternalistic manner. Alternatively, anti-Kennedy actors like J. Edgar Hoover the Nixon Republicans, and again with the Mafia and affiliated persons like Jimmy Hoffa, would have seen Monroe as an invaluable asset to glean information, not as a source of concern to snuff out. Again and again, the only ones on our heavily interconnected detective board who would have stood to benefit were the Kennedys and on the margins, the head of LAPD's various agencies the ones who were trying to prove allegiance to the reigning political order, the ones who sought advancement and long-term economic security, the ones who, through sheer Machiavellian logic, determined that their ends could be served through violent means. And in this vein, we further learn that Marilyn in fact called Mexican screenwriter and director Jose Bolanos on the day of her death. He recently escorted her to the Golden Globes of 1962 and recently went on a tropical vacation with her in Mexico. This detail is not noted in mainstream coverage, because as we've previously highlighted, her phone records were commandeered and classified immediately following her death, possibly destroyed. And again, this begs the questions of why was this necessary? Who could have the connections to do such a thing? And who was spoken with and what was said? 
PIO Tosh's wiretaps, along with selected OKID files viewed by Rothmiller, allegedly had Marilyn insisting to Bolanos that, quote, I told Jose I'm going to tell the world about them. They used me. I'm not a whore. Jose said don't tell anyone about this. It's dangerous. Jose warned her against it and said that revealing the affairs, on top of the other national security issues, was an unnecessarily dangerous proposition. Some allege that she was still in the midst of sorting out her feelings about being used by the president, but also wanting and almost seemingly needing to love and seek approval from RFK. Many claim that she wanted to spill the proverbial beans on the secret relationships, the sex, and most importantly, the lies. The scandalous and grandiose lies that would have been a political decapitation to the Kennedys in the 1960s. In 1953 didn't change Kennedy's roving ways, neither did becoming president. He felt he could have any woman in the world and he propositioned them in a way that would have earned a slap in the face for anyone else. In general, he walked up to them and asked them. There didn't seem to be any great subtlety in it. Uh, he was, uh, as they say, no gentleman. Kennedy's alleged conquests read like a who's who of the average man's fantasies in the 50s and 60s. He reportedly had affairs with Kim Novak, Angie Dickinson, Jane Mansfield, and the sex symbol of them all, Marilyn Monroe. I personally have always thought Marilyn was in love with JFK and uh, would have, uh, you know, had, if she had the chance, would have married him. Of course, JFK was not about to divorce Jackie. Longtime Hollywood correspondent James Bacon knew Marilyn as well as anybody, and he says she revealed to him the most intimate details of her relationship with Kennedy. Well, Marilyn Monroe uh, always complained that uh, JFK was too hurried up in his lovemaking, that he slammed band, thank you, ma'am, you know. And uh, as I told her, I said, Marilyn, the guy's running the country. He hasn't got time for foreplay. Recall that this was a time period where women were generally socialized to be ashamed of their sexuality, in addition to a heavy yoke of social taboos. Take this for consideration, as a sign of the times. In 1962, women didn't even largely give themselves breast exams because of the negative connotations with a very negative hypersexuality. So exposing a presidential extramarital affair with a national sex symbol movie star would have been a political train wreck for all involved. Flowing from this, political realignments and geopolitical ramifications are not hard for government observers to imagine in an alternate history. So perhaps with this in mind, RFK saw the only path forward as one of direct dealings with Marilyn, in person with all the cards on the table. Marilyn even wrote in her famous Red Diary that, quote, I'm going to tell the world about them. I'm not a whore. And all of this leads us back to private investigator Fred Otash, the man who, after decades of working for various high-profile and powerful people, privately confessed to Officer Rothmiller the details of what he heard on that fateful August day, the details he heard through the wiretaps that only he was privy to. This testimony has been noted several times throughout the podcast, 
and as previously stated, nearly all the residences connected to the Monroe cases were bugged. Bugged by OKID, the mob, by the FBI, by political operatives, and by jealous Hollywood movie stars with too much money. All trying to get little tidbits of data that they could accumulate for their own agendas, careers, and bank accounts. Needless to say, but worth repeating, is that both Maryland's and Peter Lawford's residences were bugged, and specifically done so by Fred Otash. So everything that transpired at Monroe's residence that day is on a recording somewhere. But until those tapes are potentially revealed, we have the accounts given by the various bit players in this tragic drama. Fred Otash's testimony to Officer Rothmiller was relayed at a Californian Greasy Spoon Diner, one that conjures up memories of the opening scene in Pulp Fiction. It reads as follows, quote, We met at Nate and Al's Deli restaurant, Beverly Drive, Beverly Hills. Fred Otash's secret Okid dossier was exceedingly impressive and would have been ideal for a movie script, more so than anything Hollywood could conjure up on their best day. Fred's notoriety in Hollywood drew the attention of noted writer James Elroy of LA Confidential. Elroy said he met with Otash several times and found him to be pretentious and a bullshitter. However, Elroy wrote extensively about him in his book Shakedown and Otash influenced the star role in his 2021 novel Widespread Panic. But because of my access to the file that Okid held on Fred Otash, I was in the unique position to call him out if he attempted to bullshit me. During the meeting, we went over our initial telephone conversations and I gradually led the discussion to his time as a private detective to the stars. I wanted to test his memory, open the door to talking about Monroe, and determine if he planned to bullshit me. He started to spin a story about a particular Hollywood intrigue in which he was claimed he was heavily involved. It was damned interesting, but I knew it was not entirely correct. I stared eye to eye with him and shook my head. Fred, that's interesting, but I read the intel reports on that and you were barely mentioned. How can that be if you claim to play an integral role? My stare then turned into a broad smile. I'd caught him and he knew it. As an Okid intelligence detective, my colleagues and I sought out the most corrupt, despicable, and ruthless individuals within the criminal underworld, as well as their most trusted co-conspirators who could be cultivated as eventual informants. Why? Because criminals know what other criminals are doing, like honest businessmen bragging about their latest sale or acquisition. Criminals can't stop themselves, and they tend to brag about their most recent capers. Back in 1955, Fred Otash was in the LAPD and butted heads with LAPD Chief William Parker and other high-ranking officers. The chief believed he was selling confidential police information to the media, the scandal sheets, and others as well. He was partially correct. Fred and several high-ranking LAPD commanders were selling sensitive police information and receiving envelopes stuffed with cash from illegal business operations and LA's primetime mafia. Fred eventually resigned to become a private detective and would eventually provide services to the stars, the mafia, Jimmy Hoffa, the CIA, the FBI, and high-powered politicians, and of course, the powerful Okid. Fred was a man with elastic ethics and in most instances, 
didn't see the benefit in obeying the subtler points of the law, especially when he was working for the CIA. Fred Otash and his cohorts had installed and maintained the wiretaps and bugs in Marilyn Monroe's home located at 12305 5th Helena Drive, and also at Peter Lawford's beach house at 625 Palisades Beachside Road, Santa Monica. This I already knew from the OKID files. Equally known within OKID was the fact that he was initially paid by Teamsters president Jimmy Hoffa to carry out these services. He later told Fred he was doing it as a favor for Richard Nixon. And as soon as the Monroe and Lawford eavesdropping operation was underway, Okid learned of it, as did the CIA and the FBI. Soon Otash was receiving payments for the operation from three different agencies, all who desperately wanted the information that was garnered from the recordings. It appears that Fred was very selective with the information he provided to the people paying him. Sometimes he offered up the same information to all and was paid by all. Sometimes a selected detail would go to one intelligence agency while he'd provide just a snippet to another, probably because the LAPD was the ultimate hometown muscle. And it appears that he directed most of his intelligence reports to OKID. And at that point during our lunch, I eventually asked Fred to explain how he wiretapped and bugged Monroe's and Lawford's homes. I specifically didn't ask him if he had wired the homes, but how he did it. I posed a decisive, forceful question, leaving no doubt I knew of his involvement, and he knew it would not be wise to lie to me. Taking a napkin from the table, he wiped the sweat from his brow, and after several uncomfortable moments, he said, You know what happened? Rothmiller replied with, I do, but I want to hear it from you. Again, there were several uneasy moments as he anxiously stirred in the booth and looked around the restaurant for unwanted ears. It was clear to me he was weighing his only two options. Both were unpleasant, but he needed to make a choice and make it now. Tell this cop what he wants to know or get up and leave and face the consequences. The choice was his alone. He turned back to me, placed the napkin over his mouth, leaned across the table and whispered, Are you recording this? No, said Rothmiller. That seemed to relieve a portion of his stress. However, we both knew that recording conversations in a restaurant is nearly impossible. In most cases, the ambient noise overrides the recording. That's why I had chosen to go to this restaurant. I wanted to ensure he couldn't record me. It was evident that discussing this subject gave him a genuine sense of fear. And for a person like Fred to experience fear, so many years after the statutes of limitations had expired, it could only mean he feared disclosing details about crimes for which the laws had not expired. And those were extremely serious. Otash went on to explain, A few days before her death, Marilyn had indeed placed a flurry of emotionally laced telephone calls to Peter Lawford, 
the White House, the United States Attorney General's office, Jose Bolanos, several of her friends, and her psychiatrist. Lawford had telephoned Robert Kennedy to discuss Marilyn's demands that she'd be able to speak to the president and her threat to hold a press conference and disclose her affair with the president and her relationship with Robert Kennedy. In a secret transcript that I read of the conversation with Jose Bolanos, Marilyn told him what she planned to discuss at her press conference, which would include top-secret information that Kennedy had told Monroe. Pillow talk. Telephone transcripts showed Monroe received a call from Lawford informing her that Robert Kennedy had agreed to fly to Los Angeles and meet with her privately. Additionally, he begged Marilyn not to call a press conference. She didn't believe Lawford, but after a heated discussion, she relented on the condition that Bobby came to see her quickly. Possibly for the first time in his life, Fred Otash said he was stymied. He could have quickly sold information to scandal sheets and others for massive sums of money. But unlike Marilyn, he understood the very real danger he'd face if it became public knowledge. There would be inquiries, and eventually, accusing fingers would point at him. The intelligence communities, Hoffa, and his mafia associates would not allow their involvement to become publicly known. The only method to prevent disclosure would be eliminating Fred. What Marilyn knew and was threatening to reveal was a clear breach of national security and would have irrevocably destroyed the Kennedy presidency and legacy. It's been argued that the cover-up was maintained because so many of those who knew the terrible truth had a great allegiance to the Kennedys. But many who have come forward over the years to offer clues and tiny parts of the jigsaw have said it was fear of the Kennedys which kept them quiet. End quote. He then goes on to explain how Lawford was able to pick up Robert Kennedy from the airport and take him over to his beach house residence. Remembering and reminding once again that this is August 4th. From the wiretaps that Fred Otash had recalled overhearing, he claimed that, quote, Otash then recalled that Lawford and Kennedy were discussing what it was that Marilyn wanted to prevent her from going public. Robert Kennedy said his family would pay any amount but Lawford said she wasn't after the money and that no matter what she agreed to today, she might change her mind tomorrow. Considering her alcohol and drug abuse and her less than stable mental state, she posed a significant security risk. Lawford said what she wanted most was not to be ignored by the Kennedys. And after an hour or so, Robert Kennedy placed a telephone call to the president and updated him on the events. Otash didn't recall the exact details, but said that the president asked Robert to call him back after he had met with Marilyn. Peter Lawford then placed a call to Marilyn and turned the telephone over to Robert Kennedy, who told her that he and Peter would be coming to her home later and she should not mention his planned visit to anyone. Otash thought Marilyn was slurring her words on the other end of the phone. She agreed to keep the scheduled visit secret for the moment. Fred paused at this point and said, You know that they went to her house twice. When was this? Rothmiller asked. I already knew this one from the files, but I saw this as another test of his credibility. He responded with, Once in the afternoon, and then again at night. In that, he was truthful, and that made me confident he was being honest in his overall statements. 
That evening, the second of the visits that day, Lawfer drove Robert Kennedy to Marilyn's house. From the bugs he planted in her home, Otash said that he heard the conversation between Marilyn and RFK, and it became heated almost immediately. Kennedy asked Marilyn how much money she wanted to keep her relationships with himself and his brother president a secret. Otash said that the question infuriated Marilyn. She began screaming at RFK, and the two engaged in a bitter argument. Fred couldn't understand what was said, but confirmed that the exchange required Lawford to intervene and calm both sides down. Otash then claimed that Kennedy left the room and allowed Lawford to speak with Marilyn alone. When Kennedy came back, the argument resumed. He said Kennedy was furious and kept asking Marilyn for something. Otash assumed Kennedy was after her diary. And for several minutes, Fred could hear the sounds of a person moving from room to room and rummaging through various items. This ended with Kennedy in a rage, screaming, Give it to me! This was followed by the sounds of what seemed like a physical struggle. Marilyn was screaming, and he heard Lawford yelling to stop several times. Otash then said he heard Marilyn crying, and he distinctly recalled Kennedy yelling at her to shut the fuck up. The two men spoke in inaudible whispers as Marilyn wept. Lawford then informed Marilyn that he and Robert had to leave, and that he would call her later but Marilyn didn't say anything. Otash then indicated that moments after Kennedy and Lawford exited the house, he heard what sounded like several people moving quickly through and rummaging around the house. He assumed it was Kennedy and Lawford returning, but he couldn't be sure. He thought he heard Marilyn say something akin to, who are you? But again, he wasn't sure. This was followed by sounds of another struggle interlaced with muffled screams and men's voices telling someone to shut up. He estimated that after roughly 20 minutes, he no longer heard Marilyn's voice or the sounds of the struggle. He said the subsequent sounds seemed to be people searching the house and the words, take this, take that, and did you find it? Did you grab it? Otash surmised these men might have administered a drug to Marilyn to subdue her, and they were probably searching for her diary and other items related to her affairs with the president and his brother. According to intelligence documents and Fred's own confession to me, well before the LAPD was officially notified, he was contacted by Peter Lawford informing him that Marilyn was dead. Lawford asked him to rush to her house and remove any items linking her to the president or to Robert Kennedy. And near the end of Rothmiller's grueling interview with Otash, he still had questions. Questions regarding what Fred knew about LAPD's involvement with the entire ordeal. He had already disclosed extremely sensitive information, so I believed he would continue. Staring at him across the table, it was easy to see Fred was more than anxious to leave. He glanced to the side, down at the table, down and around, all around the room. I extended my hand across the table and shook his hand. Thank you. You've been up front with me, and what you've told me will not be shared. No one will ever know. He looked at me and nodded. Okay. Then he started to slide out of the booth. Wait a minute, I just have a few more questions that came to mind. Truthfully, Rothmiller planned these questions earlier and had waited until the most opportune moment to pose them. The question at the top of his mind, who were your contacts at the LAPD intelligence service? From his expression, I knew the question had caught him off guard. I was working for LAPD intelligence, so surely I would already know that. 
He settled back into the booth and folded his arms across his chest. With a look of bewilderment, he said, Why are you asking me that? You know who I dealt with. Rothmiller replied with, Well, yeah, I do. But as before, I need to hear you say it. He was silent. Our eyes were locked on each other. I knew what he was thinking. What the fuck is he after? Why is he asking me this? But after a few uneasy moments, he said, Hamilton. Rothmiller asked, you mean Captain James Hamilton? And Tash replied with, yeah, that's the guy. After some more gentle prodding, he got Otash to reveal that Gates was also involved in this conspiracy. Rothmuller asked, you mean when Gates was captain of Okid? He nodded affirmatively at the question. I was shocked. Daryl Gates was the current police chief of the LAPD, but it made complete sense in 1975. Gates directed Okid to reinvestigate Monroe's death, and that investigation was a complete sham. And after this... Rothmiller inquired about the equipment that Otash used during his investigations of Monroe and Lawford and all the Hollywood stars. He asked him, I assume the electronic gear you used was quite sophisticated, was it? Otash replied with, yeah, it was the best. Rothmiller responded with, I thought so. But the more important question is, who provided you with that stuff? Otash paused, naturally wondering where I was going. Well, some of it I got myself, and some of it came from the feds. Rothmiller pushed forward. Which government agency, and who? Otash responded with, Well, some from the LAPD, and some from, well, y- you know. Beads of sweat began forming on Otash's brow, and it was overwhelmingly clear he didn't want to name the government agency or agencies involved. Of course, I already knew the answer. His OKID dossier indicated that his sophisticated electronic eavesdropping equipment had come from the FBI and possibly even the CIA. While he was thinking, I decided not to press him any further, as I wanted to finish the interview with a potentially less stressful question. Rothmiller asked, The night she died, what did you do when you were at her house? Otash responded with, Well, Peter asked me to grab anything related to the Kennedys and get it out of there. Rothmiller pushed forward. Yeah, but what else did you do? Otash rubbed his chin, thinking carefully before answering. The first thing I did was pull the mics out and other shit that I had planted around the house. I didn't want that shit to be found. Rothmiller asked, because that stuff could have led back to you? Otash responded, yeah, maybe. I just didn't know, so I wanted that shit out of there. Rothmiller asked, was anyone else in the house with you? He rubbed his face and paused before he nodded. Otash responded with, you know, just a few people. Rothmiller asked, did you know them? Otash responded with, yeah, one guy. And Rothmiller asked, well, who was that? And Otash responded with, Hamilton, Captain Hamilton. It was now becoming apparent that Fred was becoming irritable and mentally fatigued by this demanding round of questions. This is the response of most people when pressed by police to divulge potentially incriminating information. All experienced interrogators understand that when you have a person talking, you don't break it off to continue another day. Ending the moment allows them time to reconsider, or worse, hire an attorney. When that occurs, they'll never speak to you ever again. So with this in mind, Rothmiller asked his final question, and he promised Otash that this would be it. He asked him, quote, 
At any time after Monroe's death, did Peter ask you to do anything for him or anyone else? Otash thought about it for a moment, rested his elbows on the table, and said, yeah, he did. He asked me to check his phones and house for bugs and take them out. Rothmiller asked, wasn't that a bit strange, considering that you installed the bugs for him in the house? Otash responded with, no, he was worried that somebody else could have installed others, and he wanted them all out. Rothmiller asked him at that point if he had conducted an electronic sweep of his house, and additionally, did he say who he thought might have placed the other electronics in his house? Otash responded with, well, he didn't say specifically, but my gut tells me that he was thinking about the CIA. At this point, Rothmiller sensed the eventual end of his interrogation and called off the remainder of his questions. Otash quietly left the diner, and he never saw him ever again. So as Rothmiller would have us believe, Bobby Kennedy and Lawford arrived at about 2 p.m. and almost immediately got into a Mexican standoff with Monroe. This was the first time they stopped by the house, which as Lawford and other sources have confirmed, started with a yelling match and wild accusations being thrown across the living room. Bobby almost immediately started demanding her diary and other Kennedy remnants that were scattered around the house probably anything physical that would leave a connection or reasonable doubt between the Kennedys and Monroe. Likely objects would have been photographs, love notes, personalized or engraved gifts, but most importantly to RFK and the Kennedy clan, that goddamn diary full of career-ending truths. The ones that could reveal to the world the sexual secrets of the most powerful men on the planet. So at this point in our investigation, I would like to refocus our attention back to a very off figure in this whole saga. Housekeeper, or at least alleged housekeeper, Eunice Murray. She claims that she thought something terrible had happened when she saw Marilyn's room light still on at 3.30 a.m. on August 5th. And again, we note the time between 11 p.m. and 3 a.m. is very murky in this timeline. As we will learn from Sergeant Clemens, it seems obvious that Murray was somehow guilty and actively trying to dispose of evidence. Namely through laundry, which wasn't an active cycle when Sergeant Clemens arrived on the crime scene, but also of collusion of testimony with Dr. Greenson. For in concert with one another, they obviously discussed the details of what they would present to the police, and going back further still into the night, that she called him first before she called anybody else. These mysterious hours between 11 p.m. and 3 a.m. are crucial to our investigation and show that Eunice Murray may not be entirely honest in what she revealed to the police, the media, and to the world when she told her side of that fateful night. To start, it's unclear what would have awoke Murray in the dead of night if Marilyn was not actually conscious to make noise and rouse her from her sleep. And again, she claimed she tried to knock and open the door, but that it was locked, and she only got silence on the other side of her calls. Other Maryland experts would go on to note that there was actually no lock on the door at all, so this detail is somewhat suspect. But putting this aside for a moment, Eunice Murray, after getting no response from Maryland's bedroom, decides to call Dr. Greenson. Not the police, not the medics, 
not going around to the window herself, strictly calling Dr. Greenson and waiting for his arrival. More strangely and glaring is that she didn't use her keys to simply open the allegedly locked door. So we're talking about a housekeeper that didn't even have access to all the rooms that she most definitely had the responsibility of cleaning. So after allegedly hearing nothing from Marilyn's bedroom for what could have been an hour, two hours up to that point, Greenson arrives on the scene and tries to stir Marilyn in the same manner that Murray did. This proving unsuccessful, it is then claimed that Dr. Greenson grabbed a fire poker, went outside the house, broke the window to get in, and used this as his entry into the room so he could unlock the door. A door that had no lock. But there are also reports that glass was found on the outside of the window as well, which obviously indicates that it may have been an indoor smash to escape, or possibly a poorly thought out smashed and staged crime scene, possibly by Eunice Murray before Dr. Greenstein even arrived. Or speculating further still, the glass could have been the result of an altercation that went awry, and apparently the window was partially mended by the time the police arrived with much of the glass out of place and seemingly tidied up. In the following years, there were debates about whether the door was locked or not. Or as biographer Danforth Prince asserts in the podcast miniseries Killing Marilyn Monroe, that her room did not even have a lock. So what the hell was Murray doing for all those hours between 11 and 4.30 a.m.? Anyone who has a house can tell you that you can accomplish a lot of housework in this time period. For instance, and on a personal note, a couple rooms in my basement were recently subjected to a minor flood incident. This occurred after a storm surge overwhelmed my basement level outdoor drain and water poured in through a door frame. This happened at 4 p.m. and by 9 p.m. that night, we had mopped up all the water, laid down absorbing powder, started airing out some of the area rugs, lifted some furniture for air circulation, and positioned fans and dehumidifiers to get it bone dry. And this was throughout several rooms in my basement, whereas the Monroe crime scene was contained to one room, and to the best of mine and the expert's knowledge, no signs of a violent struggle. And by this, I simply mean that it wasn't a blood-soaked crime scene, nor could it have been. So it is, to my mind, quite reasonable to assert that Murray and Greenson could have had a minimum of four hours, uninterrupted, to stage a scene and dispose of anything that would be suspect or link them to the potential murder. Again, there was not a suicide note found despite the fact that she left one on one of her other attempts. And on this note, we will pause and save the remainder of our story for the series finale in episode five. Thank you again for listening to the Smoke-Filled Rooms podcast. Be well and stay tuned.
Thank you for listening to this podcast. We would like to be 100% crowdfunded. So we have created PayPal, Patreon, and crypto appreciation jars. They can be found at smokefilledrooms.net or on any of the Smokefilled Rooms social media accounts, such as Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Locals. Thank you in advance for your generous and much appreciated contribution. Smoke-Filled Rooms is a completely independent podcast that is created, written, hosted, produced, and engineered by me, Gregory Zink, and falls under the umbrella of Zink Publishing Incorporated. Additional voicing for the episodes is from the lovely Shari Maharaj. Cheers, and thank you again for listening.